Sometimes it's hard to take those things in our life and lay them down.
Father, we love you. We love you, God. Your word tells us that we only love you because you first loved us. In the passage we're studying today, you remind us to take delight in the fact that we are known by you, oh God, the creator of the universe the all-powerful, all-knowing creator, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And you know us. You've called us by name. Lord God, whatever turmoil is going around in our nation or in our hearts in our homes may 
May we rest upon the bedrock of your unfailing love for us, O oh God. May we stand unwavering in the truth that we are known and loved by you, God. God, we do want to pray for our country and the, the unrest and the protests and, and the ideologies that have further driven a wedge in our country. Father God, as the church, may we take the lead in bridging the divide, in cutting through the hate and demonstrating love towards one another. May we be careful, no matter where we stand politically, uh, about making uh, a God out of a leader. Lord God, we just sang a song to our King. May we remember that we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And leaders will come and go. May our allegiance first and foremost be always to you, O oh God. And may our heart be the missionary heart that Jesus left us to, to go and reach others for the gospel. May we not get distracted with so many of the things that come our way, whether it, it is politics or whether it's our hobbies or our, our, our money and our time that get, get chipped away with little things here and there and all of a sudden we've, we're not glorifying you with it. God, I pray that our allegiance would be first and foremost to you, that our heartbeat and our goal would be to take the gospel to all the world, to be a light in our homes and in our neighborhoods. We thank you that we can come here and worship you, God. We do thank you for that freedom to be able to, to, to worship here freely. And we don't take that lightly. So, God, as we are here to worship, I pray that that's exactly what our hearts do today, that we lift high the name of Jesus. And as we study the scriptures now, I pray that the things that, that we study and the, and the things that I say would, would be directly out of your word and that your spirit would take these words and apply them to our heart because we need you, Jesus. We need you. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to invite you to join me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians and the 8th chapter. Also welcome those of you who are joining us online. I know we've had some technical difficulties with our internet bandwidth in the past, and so hopefully this is working okay for you today. If, if, if not, if, you're not, if it's not coming through very well this morning, it will be online a little bit later on, and you'll be able to stream it without the, the live feature, but you should be able to have it without hiccups. This morning we're, we're talking about food that's offered to idols. That's the topic that Paul moves on to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And sometimes when you read a passage like this, as we, we've mentioned this, but you, you think, well, what in the world does this have to do with me? Just like back in chapter uh, was it 5 or 6, talking about lawsuits among believers, you're like, okay, I, I get it. I guess it's in the Bible. There was something going on there, but what does that mean to me? I'm not going to come across a situation where uh, I'm tempted to eat food that's been offered to idols. Um, as we're going to see, it, it applies beyond that. But hey, be careful what you say. Um, I remember when my wife and I were living in China, um, we had taking, taken a, a weekend away with some of our, our co-workers, and uh, we had went out to this small village that was known uh, for having these hot springs. And they had a small, uh, what they would kind of call a resort, uh, it wouldn't kind of meet resort standards maybe uh, here, but there it was, uh, it was a nice hotel and they had a neat hot springs uh, swimming pool. So in the month, I think it was like February that we went out and it was nice to be able to enjoy uh, swimming in some nice hot water outside. And so we walked into this village during our stay there and it was really a small village. Uh, in, in really out in the countryside, very poor, very rural. And uh, the, three of, the three of our families were a sight to behold. The village kind of started to, 
to gather and watch us. We had, uh, our kids were all little at the time, so we had a couple of double strollers going on, and there was no other, no other white people in the, the, in the village, probably for, for hundreds of miles around, and so we were like uh, the, the Saturday afternoon entertainment here in the village. And so um, the, uh, the two other uh, guys that were in our group uh, and I saw this um, stairway that went up the hillside, and there were some, some buildings up on top. And we all said to our wives, hey, do you mind if we just go explore? We're curious what's up the stairs. You know, it, it, it can't see it, so let's, let's check it out. And so they waited with all the kids at the bottom of the, the steps. And it was, it was a pretty lengthy uh, uh, stone stairway to get up to the top of this, this hill. And we got up there, and we discovered that there was a, a, a temple up there, a Taoist temple that was uh, um, hundreds of years old. And... There was all kinds of people milling around and preparing food, and immediately they noticed us. Again, we stick out quite a bit, and so they, uh, they wanted us to sit down and have, have some food. Um, in, in many cultures around, around the world, uh, it is, um, that is just what you do when you see someone, that, someone new or a guest comes by, you're immediately inviting them to a meal, and they wanted us to sit down and have some food to eat. Well, we explained to them in our broken Chinese that, that some of our family was, we still had kids and wives down at the bottom of the stairs, and they're like, bring them on up, bring them on up. We want to feed you guys. And so we didn't want to be rude, and so we brought them all up, and we got everybody situated and seated, and they brought us a couple of courses of food. Uh, they poured some drink of some sort uh, out of a gasoline container. I remember thinking, um, I don't remember my mom ever saying, hey, it's not a good idea to ever drink anything out of a gasoline container. But I sort of had this bell ringing in the back of my mind, like, it's probably not a good idea to drink anything out of the gasoline container. And, uh, but I'm like wrestling with, I don't want to be rude and offensive, so I took, a, I took a sip of it. I'm still not sure to this day exactly what it was, but I'm sure it could have doubled as a paint thinner and a hair, hair removal uh, liquid. So... Um, we sat down, we had this meal, um, we tried our best to converse with some of the people up there, and then, um, and then we had a couple of things with us. It's always uh, um, considered really polite to give uh, reciprocal gifts, and so we had a couple of blankets with us that we had tucked in the strollers, and so we gave them back some gifts, and, and then we went on our way. And years later, I, um, I was talking to one of our friends there who stayed in the country a lot longer and got to know the culture better. And I said, hey, David, do you remember back when we went? To the oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And I said, Did, do you think that we were eating food that had been offered to idols? And he said, oh, there's no question about it. He said, you know, we didn't know it at the time, but that meal had been ritually prepared for the the there's as sacrifices to their idols there, and, and then we were getting it as sort of the leftovers, and um, we kind of had unwittingly stumbled into a First Corinthians chapter eight situation. We didn't really know what we were doing. We wanted to be polite and eat the food, and then little did we know that we were actually uh, engaged in what I never thought would happen in my life, but something that uh, was a problem there and a real genuine issue in first century Corinth. And so we're going to read about it in these 13 verses, and then we'll talk a little bit about what was going on, Paul's response, and what he was calling the Christians there to do. Uh, this really is, as the title of our message indicates, is a, a question of Christian liberty. And so... Paul's going to start out here in chapter 8, again, kind of switching topics, uh, whether this was a question that the Corinthians asked about or it was an issue that he had heard about, and now he wants to address it. It doesn't really say, but it's a topic that's on his mind, and he brings it up. He says here, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and the one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. 
We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, we have to say at the outset that this passage here is part of a larger unit. It's really chapters 8, 9, and 10 that all go together. And so we're going to return to this issue as we walk through these three chapters because it's a, it's a whole big chunk of Scripture that Paul is dealing with this topic. And what he's going to do is he's going to continue to build on his argument and what he has to say. And so as we look at this text, the first thing that we want to see is the issue. Eating meat offered to idols. He says here um, in this passage that now concerning food that's offered to idols, we know that an idol is, is nothing. Um, and, and, uh, and then he mentions in verse 4, uh, as to the eating of food offered to idols. What was happening here is that some of these Corinthians had, had gotten saved out of this background of idol worship and, and idolatry. And uh, they, they had this position, and you'll see it in, in, uh, in the text here. Um, some of your translations will even include quotation marks as if Paul is stating their position. It says in verse 1, we know that all of us, puff, uh, all of us possess knowledge. Um, and then in verse 4, an idol has no real existence. And again, at the end of verse 4, there is no God but one. So some of these Christians were saying, listen, this idol's nothing. So what's the big deal if we eat food that's been offered to it? Well, there were other Christians who had come out of the same background but were really, really struggling with this idea. And for them, they, they couldn't have a bite of this food without their conscience being defiled. And so Paul wants to speak into this situation. Now, I want to, just by way of cultural background, uh, we have to understand there are kind of two groups here. So the, the, the knowers, um, he, he speaks of those who have knowledge, and they believe that eating this food is appropriate. And then he also speaks of the weak, who believe that eating idle food is defiling. They had come out of this background, background where... Uh, eating food offered to idols was a, a normal everyday occurrence for most people. This would happen in several different situations. You might, for example, in one place, uh, you might have it um, happen in celebrations in dining halls that were attached to pagan temples. Uh, uh, though some private events could be held at these temples, such as uh, celebrating a child's birth or a funeral, something like that, most events held at the temple, temple would have been cultic meals with very explicit idol worship. And the food used in that celebration was clearly dedicated to the gods. One writer says that political, economic, and family life and public entertainment were organized around these pagan deities. So, that, uh, so also were ordinary social group, uh, groupings. What Paul is going to say as we go on in, the, in this chapter and in the following chapters is that these, eating at these gatherings is expressly forbidden. But then there were other, other opportunities to, to eat meat that had been offered to idols, and another one of those occasions would be eating a meal in a private home. You might be going over to your buddy's house, and uh, you sit down, and there's some meat there, and he may mention it, or it may just be understood, or it may come up that this food had been offered to idols. In this case, what we're going to see when we get to chapter 10 is it was okay to eat this meat, um, unless the host specifically said it, that it had been offered to idols, then you needed to abstain. And then the third way that you would ha end up having this, this meat, this food that had been offered to idols, is just simply by going yourself to the market and buying it. Leftovers from these pagan sacrifices were sold in the meat market. They didn't waste them, and so they would go to market. In fact, a large percentage of meat that could be purchased fell into this category. This, Paul is going to say again in chapter 10, that is okay, just don't ask about it. And don't violate someone's conscience by serving it to them. And that's going to be the focus of chapter 8 here, is considering other people, considering your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, in the West, we easily separate the sacred from the secular, but not so in the Greco-Roman world. Social and religious gatherings were usually bound up together 
especially, as we said, if it was the meal in the temple. And so it seems as though many of these Corinthians were asking, so what's the big deal about eating this food? And, and why are some of these people bothered by it? And why should I let that get to me? And so Paul is going to address three main problems over the next three chapters with what they were doing. Three main issues. The one we're going to look at today is that they were being unloving. They were ignoring those whose consciences were truly bothered by eating this meat. What we're going to see in chapter 9 is that uh, they were proud by demanding their rights. Kind of stepping forward and say, who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? And then in chapter 10, Paul was going to come after them and say, some of you are being idolatrous. Some of you are allowing this practice, which in some situations is okay, to pull you back into your former ways of idolatry. So Paul has three main concerns with this, and we're just going to look at one today, that they were being unloving by ignoring those whose conscience was bothered by these things. And so as we, first of all, we see the issue, we secondly here see the truth. And Paul is going to tell them here, as we read, that uh, we know that an idol is nothing. He says that there in verse 4. We get it. We know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And the one Lord Jesus, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see, Paul wants them to understand something in the midst of knowing that is that even more important than understanding that there are no gods out there that are real, these are, these are fake, made-up, pretend gods, is that love is ultimate. Love is ultimate. He says it back in verse 1. All of us possess this knowledge, but knowledge it puffs up. Love builds up. One of the key words in this passage is knowledge. The word is used five times. We spoke about it earlier in our study of this book. The Corinthians prized knowledge for knowledge's sake. They loved being in the know. And they loved the idea that there might be secret knowledge out there. Knowledge uh, about um, the uh, that which would give them special insight into the non-material world. They wanted knowledge. They thirsted for knowledge. The more knowledge, the, the, the higher in society you, climb, you climbed. And for them, knowing this, that there is no God but the one true God. And so it's fine if I eat this meat because these idols are nothing. Paul says, listen, we all know that. We get that. But there is something more important than knowledge because knowledge puffs up. And that's love. Paul is not poo-pooing knowledge here. He's not saying that knowing stuff is not important. Every time you read your Bibles, we should be learning objective truths about God. Like when you memorize Scripture, when we study the Word of God, you learn things. Knowing that God is sovereign. Knowing that God is loving. Knowing that God is the creator of all things. Those are truths, objective truths. That's knowledge. That's learning stuff. The Bible never dissuades and discourages knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. What the Bible speaks against, and we have to guard against, is knowledge that leads to pride. Making knowledge ultimate when love gets pushed to the side. So important that we learn and study theology. I will encourage always and challenge you to read deeper, to push yourselves into learning the deep things of God, reading, reading theologians and godly saints and scholars that cause you to think deeply. I'll always encourage that. I love that myself, and I think that's so important as Christians. But when that knowledge squeezes the love of God and it pushes aside the love 
for my brethren out of my heart, then that knowledge has taken an unbiblical place in my heart and life. You see, what God wants us to grasp here is that loving people is far and away more important than winning an argument. We love to win arguments, don't we? Love to be right. Some of those most dreaded words in the marriage relationship. I told you so. Mmm. They sting because it hurts our pride. It means we were wrong. We don't like to be wrong. I don't care who you are. Nobody likes to be wrong. And so you could have the right opinion about something. You could, have, you could be taking the right side of an argument. And you might be able to blast your opponent with your knowledge, with the facts. You might be able to blow them out of the water. But we really lost, didn't we? You could go to a a store, a restaurant, and have poor service. They might get your order wrong, sell you a a product that's defective. And you could just really let that clerk, let that server have it about how bad this was and this was wrong and you messed this up. And you may be right about the facts, (laughs) but totally wrong and how you went about handling the situation. What Paul wanted these Corinthians to know is that, yeah, you've got the facts down. We get it. Those idols are nothing. But what you're doing by plowing ahead and saying, we're going to eat this no matter what, is that you are destroying brothers and sisters who struggle with this. And that should cause you to stop dead in your tracks and reconsider your position. We all know that in marriages, right, you can win the argument, you can win the battle, but lose the war. Paul is concerned about the end game here. Yes, 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 sure, that eating that meat is nothing before God. It's not a big deal. But what about your brothers and sisters? I like what Charles Swindoll has to say about this. He said a good rendering of the last part of verse 1 is that knowledge blows up, but love builds up. Knowledge is a God-given window into reality through which I can view life, but it is not contr- if it is not controlled by edifying love, it can become a dangerous weapon that destroys rather than builds. In just a few chapters, Paul's going to say it like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. My brothers and sisters, how is God calling you to be more loving in this environment, in our world today? We can take right positions on what we're pretty sure are right positions on social issues, on political issues, even on theological issues. But we can be totally wrong because we're not loving. Paul reminds them that love is ultimate. And the second thing that he reminds them under this idea of the truth is that idols are nothing. And we've already already mentioned this. I forgot I put those. 1 Corinthians 13 in there. Idols are nothing. Paul wants them to remember and understand that these idols were, were just man-made. You remember Isaiah 44? If you, if you don't, you should, if you've never read it, you should go back and read it. It's humorous. The, Isaiah talks about the, the folly of making an idol. And he's like, somebody goes out in the woods and they cut down a tree and out of one part of the tree they fashion this this God that they bow down and they offer sacrifices to and they, they lift up uh, their praises to this, this piece of wood. And on the other half of that tree, they cut it up 
and, and they make a fire to bake their, their bread and, and heat themselves with. He's like, don't you see the foolishness in this? And he sort of, sort of makes a, a mockery out of idolatry. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 115. Idols, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not, uh, but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. The silliness of idolatry. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. He's going to revisit that in chapter 10. So we'll, we'll return to the idea of the, the folly of idol worship. The bottom line, and what Paul's trying to communicate here, is that it's just not worth it. Eating meat while at the same time destroying your brothers and sisters, it's just not worth it. He says in verse 7, not all possess this knowledge. Not all work under this framework of, yeah, an idol's nothing. That means no big deal. Others struggle with it. Paul calls these individuals weak. He's not making fun of them. He's not mocking them. But he realizes that they have a weak conscience. Their conscience is defiled by seeing their fellow Christians eat this meat, which had been used in a pagan, idolatrous ceremony. I want to say a word about conscience. The conscience is an interesting thing. The Bible has a lot to say about it. It's usually negative, interestingly enough. But the Bible speaks of conscience in, according to Romans 2.15, we're all born with this innate sense of right and wrong. We've talked about this before. This is why you can go around the world into various cultures that have no, ex, uh, no um, exposure to a Judeo-Christian worldview. They've never had the scriptures or anything like that. And, and they'll still, you'll still find it... Um, with a sense of, of a wrong to, to kill, um, to take somebody else's wife, um, to take things from other people. Now, there may be certain parameters, like, hey, if they've left it unattended, then it's fair game or whatever. But there's, there's sort of an uh, innate sense of right and wrong. The Bible says that the law, according to Romans 2, has been written on our hearts. We all have a conscience of some, some degree. There's, it, all of us have something that will that's like crossing the line. Now, for all of us, everybody's line is a different place, especially if you're not a Christian. But even as you come to, come to Christ, that line might be a different place. None of us have our conscience perfectly informed by Scripture. Jesus was the only man that ever walked this earth that had a perfect conscience. There are some things that bother us that shouldn't bother us. And there are some things that don't bother us that should bother us. All of us are at varying levels. It kind of depends on where you grew up, maybe some of your Christian background, some of the things you were, you were taught. You know, if you grew up, this is just an example, but some of you may be familiar with, with uh, growing up in a very conservative church, for example, with a lot of legalism. Um, and maybe uh, you see today, and now for some of, some of you, this will make no sense whatsoever, and you might laugh. For others of you, you're like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And for others of you, you're like, this is sin, for sure. But you see somebody get out a deck of face cards, and what goes through your mind? Many of us, maybe most of us, nothing. Others are like, ooh, I remember when Grandma and Grandpa said, don't ever touch one of those if, you're, if you love Jesus. And then others of you are like, why is that even out? Aren't we Christians here? <laughs> I, th- there are other, other things like that. Maybe um, mowing your lawn on Sunday. Again, maybe for the wide majority here today, not a big deal. But if you grew up in a different time or a different church, different ideas, that was expressly for, forbidden. I remember getting caught uh, early on in my ministry uh, hanging Christmas lights on a Sunday, and someone said something to me. Why would you do that on the Lord's Day? All of us have our conscience calibrated at different places. And what he was saying here is that some of these people, their conscience, it's weak. It's, it's, it's at a place where like, they just really, really struggle with this. I can't believe that someone who truly loves Jesus would eat this meat. It was involved in a pagan ceremony, for goodness sakes. Don't you care about God? Don't you care about your witness to the world? Don't you love Jesus? You can hear him. 
And then they're like, they see you, you look, you look them right in the eye. And they're just like fit to be tied. And they're struggling, they can't sleep at night because they thought Bill over here was a believer. They thought he loved God and that he'd, he'd cast away his old pagan lifestyle. And here he is eating this meat. And they're really wrestling with it. And so what Paul is saying in this passage is not only are you causing them to struggle, but what he takes, what he says is worse. He takes it even a step further, and he says in verse 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. What he was saying is, is that not only will you have some situations where, where you're offending that person, but then in other situations, they're going to say, well, man, Bill does it. Maybe that means I'm supposed to be doing it too. And in the process, their conscience is really still wrestling with this, and they eat the meat, and then they just feel this incredible sense of guilt. Why did I do that? Oh, I've sinned against God. I've eaten this meat. What he says here is that do you hear how strong the language is? You've destroyed your brother, he says by this. You, you've destroyed them. And he says, can we, just, can we just maybe not eat the meat for the sake of our brother? That's how the, the chapter ends, verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, what a lot of us are feeling right now is what he's going to deal with in chapter 9. Why should his beliefs dictate what I do? Why does this guy who's got problems with everything get to say what I can and can't do? We'll deal with that in chapter 9. But the point I want us to get here is that when we sin against our brothers and sisters in this way, even if we don't think it's a big deal, what he says is that we sin against Christ. Love is ultimate. Considering my brothers and sisters above myself. I want to give us just a couple of takeaways to make sure that we're bringing this into our 21st century situation. And so there's a few, uh, just four things I wrote down by way of application here this morning. First of all, there are gray areas in the Christian life. There are gray areas in the Christian life, okay? I, I grew up not understanding this really well. Uh, everything was got to be black and white. I need a rule. Is it right or is it wrong? It can't be okay sometimes or okay in some scenarios and not okay in others. That's, I, I, I can't compute that. I want black or white. And many of you understand this. You're, you're, you're a rule-abiding people. You want to know the rule and you want to stick to the rule. The problem is, is that the scripture isn't like that. There are many, <laughs> there are many rules. There are many things that are black and white, but there are not rules for everything. I'm just going to list a few things. Some of these, again, <laughs> depending on your background, you may be like, somebody struggles with that? Are you kidding me? Don't laugh, all right? Because that person might be sitting in the row in front of you. And then for others of you, they're like, you're like, oh my goodness, this for sure is sin. Um, whether or not to homeschool. There's passionate debates about that. Believe you me, there are people who believe that, that, that if you truly love Jesus, you would never, ever send your kids to a public school. Uh, getting vaccines, that's, that's applicable right now. Uh, drinking alcohol, um, the, the, whether or not you should be involved in politics, going to movies, attending a gay wedding ceremony, or a wedding ceremony where a believer is marrying an unbeliever and disobeying God and that, uh, listening to secular music. Dancing. I, I think I've mentioned it before. I still remember the first time uh, when I was going, getting ready to go to homecoming um, in uh, my senior year in high school, and uh, one of our deacons in our church, who was a man I really looked up to and respected, but very, very uh, um, rigid. And uh, he found out, he came up to me and he said, Hey, I, I heard that, uh, that you're going to the homecoming dance this weekend. And I said, Yeah. And, and he didn't say a word. He just looked at me and shook his head and walked away. For him, I was, I was someone, a Christian, a fellow believer, who was going to go engage in sin by going to this dance. And he really struggled with that. Uh, maybe it's getting tattoos. 
maybe in, in uh, different types of instruments used in worship. There's, all, there's a whole list. You could add, add many to that. But there are gray areas in the Christian life. And we need to remember that as we work through uh, how, to, how to act, how to live, what things we should and shouldn't do. Uh, we have to acknowledge that there, there are things that the Bible doesn't speak to. It doesn't tell you whether it's okay to watch that movie on Netflix. There may be some biblical principles that, that would guide you in that decision, but it, uh, it doesn't specifically spell it out. The second thing I want us to see is you can't get, get through this passage without seeing that Paul puts the, the main burden upon the strong. There's a parallel passage. We haven't even talked about it, but it, it, it spells it out just as clear, more clearly. Romans 14, if you want to dive into this more this week, read Romans 14 and the beginning of chapter 15. Paul deals with it there in Rome too. A little bit different circumstances, but same idea of Christian liberty. The strong, and he says the same thing, the strong must be willing to give up their rights for the weak. He doesn't turn to the weak and say, guys, you are pathetic. Come on, get with the program. Buck up. These idols are nothing. Let's go. Come on. Eat that steak. Let's go. He doesn't push them to defile their consciences. He puts the burden upon the strong. And he says, hey, you take the lead by loving, by setting aside your rights, by caring for your brother and sister in such a way as to abstain from that practice so that you don't give offense, so that you don't drag down their faith. The third thing I want us to see by way of application is that we must remember in the end that our identity is found in being known by God. We read it pretty quickly, but there's a statement in verse 3. I, have, I mentioned verse 1 up there, but it's verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. If you're a follower of Christ, that is, if you love God, the Bible says that he knows you. How does that play into this discussion? You see, resting in the fact that you are known and loved by the creator of the universe, and that is way better than having to be right and win arguments. In fact, that sets me free from this pursuit of of stuff that takes the place of God. And one of those pursuits is the desire to always be right. Some of us just have this, this sinful longing to have the last word, to win the argument, to have that aha in your argument. And what Paul is saying here is that you don't need that because you are known by God. You see, the fact that the creator of the universe looks down from heaven, and he doesn't just know about you. He doesn't just know you in a vague, general way. He doesn't snap his fingers and say that, oh, that guy, his name starts with a J. He lives somewhere in Clare County. It's not that. He looks us in the eyes, and he says, I know you. I have seen you. I know your heart. I know your struggles. And I know that you want to be right. I know that you long to win arguments. I know that you can be a bully and push your way past people and assert yourself in ways that you feel good. But you've left a lot of bodies in your wake. And he says, listen, I want you to know you don't have to, you don't have to be that way. You don't need that to be accepted to be something in this universe. You know why? Because you're known by me. There's all kinds of things that that frees us from. It frees us from making a name for ourselves in this world, from trying to earn all the money we can, from all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of false, empty pursuits that we can engage in. And we just say, it is enough. We are known by God. At the end of this same discussion that takes place in Romans 14 and 15, Paul says, here's what I want you to do. Romans 15, 7. I want you to welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. I love that verse. To welcome each other 
How has Christ welcomed us? Unconditionally, without strings attached. With wide open arms, he's brought you near to him. And he holds you close. And he says, I know you. I welcome you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are precious to me. You don't have to be right. You don't have to win the argument. You can stop fighting now. My brothers and sisters, do you believe this? That you are known by God. No matter what this gray area might be that you're wrestling with. God sets you free from having to assert your rights. From having to get the last word. John Calvin puts it this way. When God beholds his image in us, he does not... He does that, not by looking at that which he has put into us by nature, but by that which he has put into us by grace. At the end of it all, you don't have to be right to find significance and worth. That comes from what God thinks of you and me. The final thought I want to leave you with is that being loving is better than being right. Being loving is better than being right. The Corinthians had the information on their side, the, the ones that were arguing for being able to eat meat. They had the knowledge. Technically, yes, they were right. We can be right, but in the end to be oh so wrong. Being loving, setting aside your desires, your wishes, what you think you're owed so that we can give honor to our brother and sister is what this passage calls for. And it sounds very, very much like Jesus, doesn't it? Who being in the form of God did not consider it necessary to remain in the Father's presence, but he made himself of no reputation he humbled himself by coming to this earth in the form of a servant and dying a criminal's death, giving up all of his rights so that we might have life. My brothers and sisters, let's be the kind of people that remembers that love is ultimate. God has called us to be loving before being right. May that be what we're known for as a church. Not at the expense of truth, but at the expense of fights, knowing that the cost is too great to a certain demand, but to love above all, to love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as Paul continues to build his arguments, Lord, I think you're going to reveal more things that are difficult to us. Because there's not a single person here who, who wants to be wrong. We, we, we like to win arguments. We like to be right. We like to have the facts. But God, if there are specific areas in our life right now where we might be hurting other Christians because of our liberty, Lord, would you reveal that to us? Maybe in our heart of hearts, we have the freedom to watch this or drink that or go to this place, do this on Sundays. We know that there's no scripture that speaks against what we're doing, and our conscience is clear. But Lord, if you reveal to us that in some way we're causing another brother or sister to stumble, would you, would you cause it to make us stop dead in our tracks? And may we have a willingness to repent. And then a heart that's humble enough to say, you know what? I'm going to set aside that because I care about him or her way too much to keep doing this. God, I pray that that's our heartbeat. To let love govern 
our interactions with one another, our relationships in the home, in the church, in the community. Oh God, that we would be known not as people who win arguments, who are great with witty comebacks, who know how to stick it to somebody. But may we be known by our love. May we follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was willing to set aside his divine privilege in heaven by coming to this earth. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.